Peace be upon you. So in last week's episode, we discussed the topic of a loan of righteousness, that anyone who does the smallest iota of a good deed on behalf of God, that God will add to their post-resurrection account a currency that's going to be useful for all of eternity. And that currency is righteousness. It's something that is beyond this world. When you die, all the dollars you accumulate will go to nothing. But righteousness is something that's going to serve us in this world and in the hereafter. And anyone who earns righteousness, you can think that God is going to add manifold on top of that. It's going to be so much currency that literally, if you compare Warren Buffett to the poorest individual in this world, that is going to be a gross exaggeration between someone who makes it into heaven and the people who fall into hell. And one of the points I wanted to emphasize is this aspect of just simply being kind to one another, being nice to one another. And it seems like something so trivial, so overlooked. You know, a child knows, okay, I'm supposed to be kind, I'm supposed to be caring. But how many of us really take it to heart? What does it mean to be kind? And how many of us are going out of our way to try to be kind? And it's something I guarantee as kind as you think you are, as kind as I think I might be, There's so much more we could be doing because each act of kindness we do on behalf of God grows and develops our soul and adds so much credit to our post-resurrection account in a currency that God is guaranteeing will be the best investment in anyone's life. No other investment can hold up to this, and it's guaranteed by God, the creator of the universe. And a lot of us, we mistake kindness with just being fair and equitable. And these aren't the same. You can think of being fair, being just, being equitable as the bare minimum to be righteous. Kindness is one step above that. In 5.8 it reads, O you who believe, you shall be absolutely equitable and observe God when you serve as witnesses. Do not be provoked by your conflicts with some people into committing injustice. You shall be absolutely equitable for it is more righteous. You shall observe God God is fully cognizant of everything you do. Being equitable, not bearing false witness, giving an honest testimony is the bare minimum. One step above that is actually pardoning people. Letting people have a pass. Yes, someone has wronged you. You let it go. And by doing that, that is an act of kindness. In 41.33 it reads, Who can utter better words than one who invites to God, works righteousness, and says, I am one of the submitters? Not equal is the good response and the bad response. You shall resort to the nicest possible response. Thus, the one who used to be your enemy may become your best friend. None can attain this except those who steadfastly persevere. None can attain this except those who are extremely fortunate. Now, we have every right to stand up for our rights. We have every, uh, God is saying, those who stand up for their rights, that they are not committing any sin by doing so. But if we resort to forgiveness, and even better, if we resort to the nicest possible response, God is saying that that is what it takes to be kind. That is what it takes to be a true submitter. In 42.37, we read the traits of the believer. It says, they avoid gross sins and vice, and when angered, they forgive. They respond to their Lord by observing the contact person a lot. Their affairs are decided after due consultation among themselves, and from our provisions to them, they give to charity. When gross injustice befalls them, they stand up for their rights. Although the just record for an injustice is an equivalent retribution, those who pardon 
and maintain righteousness are rewarded by God. He does not love the unjust. Certainly, those who stand up for their rights when injustice befalls them are not committing any error. The wrong ones are those who treat the people unjustly and resort to aggression without provocation. These have incurred a painful retribution. Resorting to patience and forgiveness reflects a true strength of character. As submitters, we have to always be striving to do better, to do more, to be more kind, to raise the bar, to be a good example. And God is telling us that the bare minimum is to be equitable, to be just. That as long as we're doing that, we, are, we fall in the camp of righteousness. But if we want to be above and beyond, to strive to be a moment, a true believer, that we have to be kind, we have to be forgiving, we have to pardon people, we have to let things go. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're getting the reward from God because we realize inflicting an equivalent revenge, a punishment, even though it's in our right, it's in our best interest to forgive, to forget, to be uh, kind, to be compassionate, to not be such a stickler. And this doesn't mean to be a pushover. A lot of times people equate, in essence, being kind and compassionate with being a pushover, and that's not true. One of the verses from the Bible, it's in Matthew 5, 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, if you look up the definition, the English definition of the word meek is someone who's kind of simple, uh, they're not aggressive, uh, they're very plain in that sense. But I was listening to a uh, lecture by uh, Jordan Peterson, and he was saying when he looked into the root word of this, the, the, the original word meek, what it means is someone who has a sword but keeps it in its sheath, meaning they know how to use it. They could inflict revenge. They can inflict harm. They could stand up for themselves. But through a conscious effort, they choose not to in that sense because they realize that God is the one who dishes out all judgment. God is the one who brings people up and tears people down. And if we think that we can take justice into our own hands, it's in our right. But it's one of the things that when we actively leave things to God, then that's when we get the ultimate reward. And this is different than being lazy. A lot of people, they equate their uh, laziness or their fear of intimidation to stand up for their rights as a virtue. And as stated in a previous episode, is we never let our shortcomings be viewed as virtues. We have to be honest with ourselves. But once we realize that it's within our grasp to seek revenge, to uh, to dish out, in essence, uh, retaliation, but we actively choose not to, that's what it means when it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These are people who are fully able, but they choose not to. I hear a lot of uh, the uh, people in MMA, MMA and, uh, you know, well-trained black belt jujitsu, they know how to handle themselves. And what's awesome is a lot of these people are so humble and they're the last one to get into an altercation because they know that if it ever came to that, that they would uh, be able to have the upper hand with all the training they have, but they choose not to because they're, they've grown past that. They've been able to be humbled. They've been able to kill their egos and we strive to do the same. In 554, it reads, O you who believe, if you revert from your religion, then God will substitute in your place people whom he loves and who love him. They will be kind with the believers, stern with the disbelievers, and will strive in the cause of God without fear of any blame. 
Such is God's blessing, he bestows it upon whomever he wills. God is bounteous, omniscient. 52.25, it reads, They will meet each other in remnants among themselves. They will say, We used to be kind and humble among our people. God has blessed us and has spared us the agony of ill winds. We used to implore him. He is most kind, most merciful. So these are not people who are pushovers. These are not people who are just intimidated to stand up for their rights. These are people, a true submitter, someone who strives, is someone who knows that if they wanted to, they could be a real terror, but they choose not to because they leave things to God. They're patient, they're tolerant, they pardon the people, they let things go because they realize that God is the one who's in full control. And an example of this is from a World War II um, uh, history. And uh, it has to do with two people. One was a person by the name of Charlie Brown, who was on the uh, American side, and Franz Stigler, who was fighting on the German side. And Charlie Brown was an Air Force pilot, and he was flying a B-17 on its first mission over German airspace. And he was warned, he said, look, the likeliness of coming back is very low. And uh, he went into a uh, fierce terrain, and he was severely, him and his crew were shot up to the point that the B-17 was barely staying uh, uh, airborne. And he was flying away, trying to get back into uh, safe airspace. And one of the German fighter pilots sees this B-17 barely staying, uh, staying up in the air and flies up. And he sees that the entire plane is shattered. The engines are knocked out. The nose of the plane is missing. And then he sees all the blood and the injured uh, soldiers on board. And he makes eye contact with Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown thinks, this is it. His life is over. And something miraculous happens. Franz Stigler, he goes and he uh, hovers underneath the plane. And he escorts it outside of German airspace. Thinking that if he shot this plane down, he wouldn't be able to live with himself. And uh, Charlie Brown doesn't know what happened, and he takes off, and miraculously, they uh, travel 250 miles or so, and they're able to safely land. And uh, for 40 years, neither party knew what happened to the other. And it's kind of interesting. Charlie Brown, when he told his uh, supervisor, at first they said, oh, this is amazing. We should uh, tell people this. And... Uh, they brought it up command, and command said, no, don't tell this to anyone. And there was a reason. They didn't want to humanize the enemy. They wanted to keep the Germans as dehumanized as they can. And Franz Stigler, when he went back, he knew that if anyone found out what he did, that he would be shot for treason. And for 40 years, neither side knew what happened to the other. Until Charlie Brown one day in a conference was talking about this, and uh, was inspired, in essence, to go and see if he can find this uh, German fighter pilot. So for years he searches, and somehow, miraculously, they're connected. Ends up the guy's living in, uh, Franz Stickler's living in Canada, he's a successful businessman, and he survived the war. And they're united, and uh, they end up becoming very close friends. And the question was, why didn't Franz Stickler shoot down Charlie Brown? And he said years before the world, uh, world War II started, he was uh, in a mission in uh, Africa. And his commanding officer asked him, said, hey, if you shoot down a plane 
and you see someone parachute out, what do you do? And he hesitated. He didn't know how to answer. And his commanding officer said, I'll tell you this. If you shoot that person flying down, you can guarantee when you come back, I'm going to shoot you. And Franz was uh, taken back. He didn't understand. He says, we maintain rules of war, not for the enemy, but for ourselves. Because after the war ends, we want to be able to go home and have some dignity. And he said that that was such an impactful message to him that when he saw the plane in the condition it was, he knew that if he was to shoot it down, it would be murder. So he couldn't live up to doing that. And in, instead, he escorted the plane out to, to safe airspace and risked his own life in doing such a mission. Now, this is a person who had a sword. He could have used it, and he had every right to, and no one would have known. But because he realized that he would not be able to live with himself, that for all of eternity, he would feel like he committed murder, he chose not to carry out the act. And that's what it means to be meek. That's what it means to be, uh, when it says, blessed are those, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And there's a tendency in war, in general, in tribalism, where we always want to dehumanize the people that we're oppressing, the people that we're fighting. And you think about it in uh, the U.S. with slavery, uh, in World War II with the, the Jewish population, and today with the refugees. And this isn't right. We have to understand that God has made life sacred. And when we're treating other people unfairly, unjustly, and not being kind, we're doing a disservice to our own souls. In 49.13, it reads, The only criteria for distinguishing among the people, it says, O people, we created you from the same male and female and rendered you distinct peoples and tribes that you may recognize one another. The best among you in the sight of God is the most righteous. God is omniscient, cognizant. In 5.48, it reads, when we reveal to you this scripture truthfully, confirming previous scriptures and superseding them, you shall rule among them in accordance with God's revelations and do not follow their wishes if they differ from the truth that has came to you. For each of you, we have decreed laws and different rights. Had God willed, he could have made you one congregation, but he thus puts you to the test through the revelations he has given each of you. You shall compete in righteousness to God is your final destiny, all of you. Then he will inform you of everything you had disputed. So this is part of God's system, that we're different people, we have different rights, we have different tribes, we have different skin colors. And the question is, how do we treat each other based on these differences? In 1753, it says, treat each other amicably. It says, tell my servants to treat each other in the best possible manner, for the devil will always try to drive a wedge among the people. Surely, the devil is man's most ardent enemy. It's the devil that uh, makes us focus on those differences to dehumanize others. And you saw it in the interaction between God and Satan, where Satan said, I am better than he. You created me from fire. You created him from mud. Not realizing that the, the superficial aspect is meaningless. What matters is what's in our heart and the growth and development of our souls. And you realize that in order to be able to be kind, we have to get outside of our comfort zone. We have to elevate ourselves to the point that we're going to do something that isn't going to feel comfortable. And that's a good thing. In 59.8, we read about how during the time of the prophet, certain people took on refugees. 
and it reads, You shall give to the needy who immigrated. They were evicted from their homes and deprived of their properties because they sought God's grace and pleasure, and because they supported God and his messenger. They are truthful. As for those who provided them with a home and a refuge and were believers before them, they loved those who immigrated to them and find no hesitation in their hearts in helping them. In fact, they readily give them priority over themselves. Even when they themselves need what they give away, indeed, those who overcome their natural stinginess are the successful ones. So God is telling us, as an example of these individuals, that they were willing to give to these refugees what they needed themselves. And you see that in order to be kind, we have to get outside of our comfort zone. We have to push ourselves to do more. Because if we're just sticking with the status quo, we'll be part of the sedentary. And on the day of judgment, to know that you could have done just a little bit more and paid back so much greater, it's going to be the biggest disappointment if we miss out on that. You know, more so than any investment of this world. And the element that's keeping us from doing that is the self. In 1253, it says, I do not claim innocence for myself. The self is an advocate of vice. Constantly, it's easy to think, what is best for me? You know, putting ourselves number one, exalting ourselves. How can I have the best position in this negotiation, in this interaction? To not do things for other people and to only focus on oneself. And if we can kill that self, kill that ego, and focus on how we can serve God to do good deeds, to gain a loan of righteousness from God, it's going to be in our best interest. And um, there was a piece on 60 Minutes. This was a few years ago. And it was uh, looking at an individual. His name was uh, Nicholas Winton. And uh, it's another story from World War II. And so this individual was living in London, and he saw that Germany was invading Czechoslovakia. And he was concerned. He had no ties there, but he was concerned about the family and the children, the innocent civilians that were there and what could potentially happen to him. So he took a two-week break from his work, and he traveled to Prague. He stayed in a hotel. And what he was doing is trying to figure out how to get these children to safety. So he started forming documents, sending out uh, letters to people in, uh, uh, in England, asking if they will host and adopt children from uh, Prague. In total, he was able to save 669 children from imminent death because when Germany invaded uh, Prague, they took all the Jewish uh, families and they slaughtered them. Mass genocide. But this individual took his time, took his effort, and he had no particular skill set for this. He just saw an opportunity, in essence, to do something of righteousness. And he went and he was able to change the lives of tens of thousands of people because those 669 people, they all had families, they all had children, and the amount of impact that they had is beyond our grasp. And um, what's even more strange is that this individual... Nicholas Winton, for 50 years, barely told a soul about what he did. The people that he saved had no clue that he was the one who was, uh, uh, was able to allow them to, to, to live. The families that gave their children didn't know that this was one man behind this operation. He had no task force, no special skills, nothing. 
All he had was this hope to be able to make a change, to do something righteous. God willing, I'm going to link to the episode after the podcast and you guys can listen to it. It's absolutely amazing. But here's a person who's done such a selfless act to be able to carry out such kindness. And um, inshallah, God rewards him both in this world and in the hereafter. And we see this, that those who are going out for the least able are the ones who we can call probably the most kind. And in a previous podcast, we discussed the story of Sindutai Subkal. And uh, highly recommend, uh, if you get a chance, you can look her up. An amazing story about how she dedicated her life to helping orphans, people who were even worse off than she was. And at the time, she was a uh, divorced um, single mother with nothing living in the slums of India. And we see several examples of people who went out on a limb to help out a child. One is in the example of the uh, governor who uh, bought Joseph from slavery. And in 1221, it says, The one who bought him in Egypt said to his wife, Take good care of him. Maybe he can help us or maybe we can adopt him. And you can tell from the interaction, they did not treat Joseph like a slave. Even though they bought him, they treated him like a member of the family until, you know, the governor's wife tried to seduce him. In another example, we see the example of Pharaoh's wife who saw Moses in a basket in a stream and asked Pharaoh, please do not kill him. And not just to spare his life, says, this is a joy fine for me and you. Do not kill him for he may be of some benefit for us or we may adopt him to be our son. They had no idea. Now you think of this, that they were willing to take him on as a child, as a son, both uh, the governor with Joseph and Pharaoh's wife. And that is not a trivial responsibility to be responsible for a child, to be able to care for them, take care of them, watch over them, protect them. This is a major responsibility. And one of the most selfless acts of kindness comes from being a parent. Now, obviously, not everyone's going to be a great parent. But the aspect that if someone is willing to bring someone in this life and be able to make their priorities for their child greater than their own, it's teaching us what it means to be kind. And God is emphasizing this in the Quran in 1722. It says, you shall not set up any other God beside God, lest you end up despised and disgraced. Your Lord that uh, has decreed that you shall not worship except him and your parents shall be honored. As long as one or both of them live, you shall not say to them, oof, the slightest gesture of annoyance nor shall you shout at them, you shall treat them amicably and lower for them the wings of humility and kindness and say, my Lord, have mercy on them for they have raised me from infancy. Your Lord is fully aware of your innermost thoughts. If you maintain righteousness, he is forgiver of those who repent. And this is a huge responsibility for us as children because everyone has a mother, has a father. Um, when we came into this world, and to be conscientious of the sacrifice they gave to bring us into this life. And again, a lot of the parents are going to be dysfunctional. But the reality is they still are the responsible agents coming, bringing us into this life. And we always have to have kindness and compassion in our heart towards them. Even if they're not the best of parents. But most of us, I'm sure many of us, had amazing interactions with our parents and can think of numerous things that they've done, sacrifices they've given to bring us uh, uh, up 
to the best that they could. And it's interesting that God is going above that and saying, you know, it kind of extends out. So first it's the immediate family, then it's the relatives. In 875 says those who believe afterwards and emigrated and strove with them, uh, they belong with you. Those who are related to each other shall be the first to support each other. And in 2422, it reads, those among you who are blessed with resources and wealth shall be charitable towards the relatives. And it's our responsibility to be kind, to be compassionate, even with our relatives and anyone within our vicinity, because we make an impact on everyone we engage with. And God is telling us even the lowest of society, we need to be kind and compassionate to. In 22, I'm sorry, 76.8, it reads, they donate their favorite food to the poor the orphan and the captive. We feed you for the sake of God. We expect no reward from you, nor thanks. Now, how awesome is this that God is telling us to give our favorite food to the captive? This is someone who's of the enemy camp that has been taken in and imprisoned. And God is telling us to give our favorite food to these individuals. Why? I believe the reason is, is because most of the people who are fighting us do not do so because of uh, material aspects. They fight us because of ideology. And when someone is kind and compassionate and offering their favorite food to you, it's really hard to have resentment towards that individual. And you see that there was a uh, case study it was looking at um, during the uh, Patriot Act when they were doing the uh, enhanced interrogation, the waterboarding and torturing of individuals, that what ended up getting the best results was kindness and compassion, literally giving people milk and cookies, Quran. This is what was able to turn individuals uh, that they uh, detained. And it wasn't the harsh interrogation. And we see other examples. One of the most clear examples of being kind is through Abraham. God describes him in 9.113. It says, Abraham was extremely kind and clement. And we see that how Abraham reacted when two strangers came to him. Uh, these were angels that were going to tell him about the, uh, the birth of uh, Isaac. But what he did before he knew any of that was he went and roasted a fat calf. Now, this is a huge investment that he gave to strangers he didn't even know. And you think that who's, what kind of a person is willing to do that? It's someone who's extremely kind. Now, compare that to the Sodom and Gomorrah when the same angels went to go visit Lot, what was their response? Now, keep in mind, a traveling alien, someone who's in a foreign land, is pretty low on the totem pole of status. And the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, as opposed to being kind and compassionate and caring and offering them food and shelter, they literally wanted to rape these individuals and kill them. And if it wasn't the fact that they were sent by God and could defend themselves, that could have very likely been their outcome. And this just goes to show how sick and twisted those individuals were in contrast to Abraham, who literally took his best livestock, the roasted calf, fat calf, and roasted it for them to eat. And surprisingly enough, they didn't even eat because they're angels. And it's the simple stuff that we overlook. You know, we think that we have to go above and beyond to do all these uh, amazing tasks. But one of the quotes I love says, if you want to change the world, start by just helping your parents do the dishes. Something as simple as that. Help around the house. You know, help your teacher uh, grade some homework. Something. You know, we don't have to travel to far out lands to be able to do righteous work. The opportunity is around us all the time. 
And the reality is if we open our eyes, if we look out for it, God is going to bless us with these opportunities. And we see this in the example of Moses. So Moses fled Egypt, and uh, we read in 28, 22 through 24, it says, As he traveled towards Midian, he said, My Lord, guide me in the right path. When he reached Midian's water, he found the crowd of people watering and noticed two women waiting on the side. He said, What is it that you need? They said, We are not able to water until the crowd disperses, and our father is an old man. He watered for them, then turned to the shade, saying, My Lord, whatever provision you send to me, I am in dire need of it. Soon one of the two women approached him shyly and said, My father invites you to pay you for watering for us. When he met him, he told him his story. He said, Have no fear. You have been saved from the oppressive people. Now, how awesome is this? Moses was in dire need, but was willing to cater to the needs of someone else, knowing that God would reward him. And sure enough, he did. God not only gave him food and shelter, but gave him a wife, gave him a family from this single interaction and blessed him with prophethood. And we do these things, again, not because we're looking for the gratitude of other people. We do this strictly for the sake of God. Just like it reads in a... 76 9 says, We feed you for the sake of God. We expect no reward from you nor thanks. Because it's not about the rewards of this world that we're after. We're after the rewards in the hereafter. By taking a loan of righteousness, by doing good deeds on behalf of God, for the sake of God, then we get rewarded by something that's far exceed anything of this world into our post resurrection account. And there's just two other things I want to wrap up uh, with this uh, podcast. One is in chapter 90, verse 11. It says, he should choose the difficult path. Which one is the difficult path? The freeing of slaves, feeding during the time of hardship, orphans who are related, or the poor who is in need. And being one of those who believe and exhorting one another to be steadfast and exhorting one another to be kind. And that's what we need to do as believers. We need to exhort one another to be kind, to be compassionate, to be nice to one another, to get outside of our comfort zone and push ourselves towards that. And I want to end with one last piece. This is an um, article written by, the, uh, by Rashad Khalifa in the uh, 1989 conference. It's a brochure. And he reads, We have been immensely blessed by God, and we must exert the extra special effort to show our appreciation for God's gift and to make ourselves worthy of God's infinite grace. As a society of submitters, we must set the standard for moral and righteous behavior. We must be honest trustworthy, truthful, chaste, loving, and peaceful. God and his angels treat every human being as a potential believer until the time of death. Let us do the same. Let us love every human being as a potential believer who may become better than you and me in due time. This is by no means blind love. Our guide here is the Quran, chapter 60, verse 8 and 9. May God reward generously for your time, effort, and financial sacrifices. Your brother in submission to God, Rashad. So God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments, questions, hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com and stick around. I'm going to play the uh, uh, episode of 60 Minutes Saving Our Children about the uh, individual who saved the 669 children from uh, Prague uh, and uh, Nazi Germany. Till next time, peace and God bless. Now an extraordinary story from the Second World War, a humanitarian story that didn't come to light for decades. It concerns a young Londoner named Nicholas Winton who went to Prague 
and ended up saving the lives of 669 children, mostly Jews, from almost certain death. His story begins at the end of 1938 with Europe on the brink of war. In Germany, violence against Jews was escalating, and the infamous Munich Agreement paved the way for Hitler's armies to march unopposed into Czechoslovakia. In London, Nicholas Winton had been following events and knew that refugees fleeing the Nazis were in dire straits. He went to Czechoslovakia to see if there was anything he could do to help. What's strange is that for almost 50 years, he hardly told anyone about what he had accomplished. And for 50 years, the children knew nothing about who had saved them or how. We begin on October 1st, 1938. Nazi troops marched into the Sudetenland, the German-speaking region of Czechoslovakia. Prague, the Czech capital, was flooded with desperate people trying to escape. A fortunate few were able to send their children abroad. These parents, mostly Czech Jews, sensed war was coming and wanted to get their children out. By chance, a cameraman filmed a man holding a boy, a 29-year-old Londoner. His name, Nicholas Winton. All I knew was that the people that I met couldn't get out, and they were looking of ways of at least getting their children out. Nicholas Winton is one of the few people who can bear witness to those days because he's 104 years old. He told us he went to Prague to see if he might be able to save some people. But what made you think you could do it? I work on the motto that if something's not impossible, there must be a way of doing it. Back in London, Winton was a successful stockbroker living the good life with a passion for sports. But he was deeply concerned about news reports from Czechoslovakia of German persecution. I went out into the camps where the people who had been displaced were put. And it was winter and it was cold. Immigration wasn't an option. The world's doors were closed to the refugees. Conditions in the camps were brutal for the 150,000 people trapped there, especially for the children. And no one focused on them until Nicholas Winton. But what did he do? We went to Jerusalem to Yad Vashem, Israel's memorial to the victims of the Holocaust, and asked Dr. David Silberklang, a senior historian there. And Winton went, set up shop in a hotel in the center of the old city in uh, Prague, and began looking into how can I organize getting some of these refugees, particularly the children, out of here. What kind of experience did he have to qualify him for this immense bureaucratic task? None. Winton set up a small organization with one aim, to get as many kids out as fast as possible. People started coming to him in increasing numbers. He didn't have time in the day to meet them all. He'd work till 2 in the morning, get up early in the morning to meet the next people. As more and more were coming, saying, take my child, take my child. By the time he returned to London, he had a list of hundreds of children and set out to convince British authorities to take him seriously. He did it by taking stationery from an established refugee organization, adding children's section, and making himself chairman. So that eventually they had to adopt me. 
So in fact, you managed to do what you did through a little deception, a little smoke and mirrors. Yes, to a certain extent, yes. It required quite a bit of ingenuity. No, it just acquired a printing press to get the, the newspaper printed. The children's section operated from a tiny office in central London. Winton's mother was in charge. The staff were all volunteers. During the day, Winton worked as a stockbroker. Evenings, he wrestled with the British bureaucracy. Did you approach any other countries to take some of the children? The Americans. But the Americans wouldn't take any, which was a pity we could have got a lot more out. Winton had written President Roosevelt asking the U.S. to take in more children. A minor official at the U.S. Embassy in London wrote back the U.S. was unable to help. Britain agreed to accept the children, but only if Winton found families willing to take them in. So he circulated the children's pictures to advertise them. But even after a family chose a child, British authorities were slow in issuing travel documents. So Winton started having them forged. He also spread some money around. Took a bit of blackmail on my part. You were indulging in blackmail and forgery to get the children out. I've never heard it put like that before. <laughs> but you seem to be enjoying it. It worked, that's the main thing. The first 20 children left Prague on March 14, 1939. The next day, German troops occupied Prague and the rest of Czechoslovakia. Hitler rode through the streets triumphant. Hugo Meisel was 10 years old. Do you remember the Germans coming into Czechoslovakia? Not only do I remember, I personally saw Hitler standing up in the car and the children were expected to say Heil Hitler and so forth. I remember as if yesterday. It wasn't long before violence against Jews, property confiscations and forced labor that began in the Sudetenland spread throughout Czechoslovakia. But the Nazis allowed Winton's trains to leave in keeping with their policy to cleanse Europe of Jews. Hugo Meisel's parents decided it was time to put him and his brother on one of the trains. I remember that they told us that we were going to England, maybe two or three months. It would be a holiday for us, and that they would join us very shortly. And you believed them? Absolutely. Were your parents emotional when they said goodbye to you? No, I re I, I, I've asked myself that question many times how my parents had the strength I'm sorry it never occurred to me that what they were saying to us was not true in other words that they realized that they they would not be joining us within a short period of time. Over the spring and summer of 1939, seven trains carried over 600 children through the heart of Nazi Germany to Holland, where they took a ferry to the English coast. From there, they caught a train to London. An eighth train, carrying 250 more, was scheduled to leave Prague on September 1st. But that's the day the war began.
They were all at the station, even on the train waiting to go. And war was declared, so the train never left. Never heard really what happened to all those children. But there's reason to suspect that not many of them survived. I think that's true, yes. Two years after that last train, the Nazis began implementing the final solution, their plan to slaughter all the Jews of Europe. Czech Jews were rounded up and shipped to Theresienstadt, an old military garrison town about an hour north of Prague, their first stop on the road to annihilation. These tracks were the exit from Theresienstadt, the only exit. The tracks led east. The trains were called Polish transports. Destination, Auschwitz. Some 90,000 people took that one-way ride. Among them, almost all the children, so Nicholas wasn't able to get out in time. Their parents and the parents of the children already in England. After the war, you went back to Czechoslovakia. Was there one instant where you accepted the fact that your parents were dead? For three years, we used to visit when trains came from Siberia, especially when the communists moved in in 1948, a lot of people started coming back from Siberia. So I would go to a station hoping, and when films were being shown of people walking in concentration camps, Auschwitz and so forth. There's so many shots being taken by the Germans and, and so forth. Um, never stopped looking. The name of every Czech Jew murdered in the Holocaust is painted on the walls of Prague's Pinkus Synagogue, over 77,300 names, including Arnoshka and Pavel Meisel, Hugo's parents. And Nicholas Winton? During the war, he volunteered for an ambulance unit for the Red Cross, then trained pilots for the Royal Air Force. He got married, raised a family, earned a comfortable living. For 50 years, he told hardly anyone what he had done. A question which I know intrigues everyone who hears your story is why did you keep it secret for so long? I didn't really keep it secret. I just didn't talk about it. All this time, you're in England, then you go back to Czechoslovakia, then you go to Israel, you still had no idea how your departure from Czechoslovakia had been organized. Absolutely no idea. And you learned that by seeing it on television. That's right. In 1988, the BBC learned about Winton's story and invited him to be part of a program. He had no idea that the people sitting around him were people he had saved. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton. If so, could you stand up, please? Mr. Winton, would you like to turn round? On behalf of all of them, thank you very much indeed.
suppose it was the most emotional moment of my life, suddenly being confronted with all these children who weren't by any means children anymore. No, they weren't. And for the first time, they looked at you and knew that you were the reason that they were alive. Yeah. True. I wore this around my neck, and this is the actual pass that we were given to come to England. And I'm another of the children that you face. Lady Milliner Grenfell Baines describes Winton as one of the most modest people she's ever met. Why do you think he didn't say anything for 50 years? I think it was in his, in his nature. He really felt that he'd done all he could, and having got those children settled, he felt, been there, done that, my job's done, I've got other things to do. Other things. For the last 50 years, Winton's been helping mentally handicapped people and building homes for the elderly. We've just opened our second old people's home, and it's full, and it's doing very well. And there are plenty of old people like me to go in. But you're not there, you're at home. Oh, I'd hate to go into one of my own homes. <laughs> Don't print that. <laughs> Sir Nicholas Winton. In 2003, Winton was knighted and became Sir Nicholas Winton. In the Czech Republic, he's become a national hero. He was celebrated in a documentary called Nicky's Family, but he isn't really comfortable with all the adulation. I'm not interested in the past. I think there's too much emphasis nowadays on the past and what has happened, and nobody is concentrating on the present and the future. In 1939, Nicholas Winton used a two-week vacation to go to Prague and ended up saving the lives of 669 children. In the decades since, of course, the children had children who then had children and so on and the numbers multiplied. You want to summarize it in one sentence. A guy takes a two-week vacation. And ends up with 15,000 children, yes, yes. It's a pretty good story. It's a great story. They've got children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And none of them would be here if it hadn't been for Sir Nick. That's right, yeah. Yeah, terrible responsibility, isn't it?